Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Tuesday, July 6th, 2021. We hope you had a terrific long holiday weekend with the 4th of July. We hope you're safe and healthy. And uh, we have a lot in store for you in this episode. We're going to jump right into it. A terrific interview here with William Donahue of St. John's College in Santa Fe. He recently talked to our senior producer, Matt Grubbs, about receiving the Leroy Doggett Prize for his work in historical astronomy. Uh, the American Astronomical Astronomical Society recently named him the winner for his contributions in the field. And he talked to senior producer Matt Grubbs about why it's important to study the evidence of the past as well uh, as look towards the future. And uh, it's just a fascinating interview. We're thrilled to profile the award-winning work of a New Mexican here. And so let's kick it over to Matt Grubbs. Bill Donahue, thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Um, The idea of historical astronomy, what is it that we can learn by studying past scientific and astronomical discoveries? Ancient Greeks were mathematizing the heavens in like the 4th century BC. Ptolemy uh, was, um, had created, he, first of all, he, he had this very interesting preface, which was very modern and was saying that we, uh, that we really, we know something about where we see the, the planets and stars going. We're not really entitled to know anything else about that. That's all kind of speculation, it's theology. Uh, so, uh, so what the job of astronomy is, is to make, create a mathematical model that will predict the things that we can see which is really very modern. There are a lot of modern, like 20th century scientists like Dirac, who, who really said about the same thing. In a, in a very simplified way, by studying those old astronomers, you can see how that approach developed, and you can include that in a, uh, in a curriculum that ordinary undergraduates can do, unlike a lot of quantum stuff, which involves a lot of complicated mathematics. So that's, uh, that's one side of it. And then another is that naturally there were people who came along and said, you know, I think we can actually learn more stuff about the stars than just creating mathematical models. Kepler was one of those and, and his, his advances in astronomy were a huge, he set the research pattern for the next hundred years by saying, look, we believe that the, the Earth is one of the planets, so the planets must be like the Earth. So the job of the astronomer now, planetary astronomer, is to figure out how these things really are moving as physical objects. And that means we're gonna to have to deal with forces, and that means we're gonna to have to mathematize forces. He, nobody had ever done that before, so he was just kind of making, making up a, a system but he, you can see how he set the scene for Newton. And up until this point in human history, um, the assumption, there are all sorts of assumptions, but the, one of the big ones was that um, orbits are circular. Um, and it wasn't until you know, 50 years earlier than that that we thought, 
oh, well, the Earth is at the center of everything because we are at the center of everything. Um, what a fascinating period of time, I think, for someone to study. It was exciting. And interestingly, Kepler, I think, was just about the first of the second generation Copernicans. That is, his teacher, although his teacher taught Ptolemaic astronomy, he was privately a follower of Copernicus. And outside of class, he taught Kepler, uh, he helped Kepler read Copernicus. Uh, so Copernicus, I mean, Kepler had a, had a leg up on, on this. He already, he already, you know, practically with, as a kid in, in, as a freshman in college was, was studying Copernicus. And, and so he was a jump ahead of everybody else and thinking, what are the consequences of, the, of making the earth into a, into a planet? Uh, <laughs> you know, then all these planets are like earth. And what then? So. How long did it take for this to sort of become accepted? It was about 50 years. Uh, Descartes was really big. Uh, Galileo was big. Kepler was uh, not, he didn't have such a popular following. But what he did was he set the, the research program for the next 100 years by saying, look, if the Earth is a planet moving around the sun, then the planets must be like Earth. So, they, so we've got a whole different kind of challenge in our physics. We need to be able, we know on Earth that things move because they get pushed and pulled. And it's not moving because they are made out of some magic substance that, that flies around in the sky. So we need to base our celestial physics, our explanations of planetary motion on physical causes, which means you have to mathematize forces. And nobody really knew how to do that. Uh, Kepler didn't know how to do it either. He started making things up. You know, he said, well, maybe it's kind of like the way a magnet works. And so he had this whole theory, theory involving magnets. And, but even, even as he was working out the theory, he was saying, you know, there's some, there's some places where this theory just doesn't work. And I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> So, uh, and then he says, okay, so it's up to you guys out there who are reading this to figure it out. And Newton was one of those guys. It changes everything. Um, the, the study of, of historical astronomy um, and the translation work that you've done is something that fit into your career um, at St. John's, which is a great books institution. For people who aren't familiar with that, can you explain a little bit about the course of study and how your work and historical astronomy in general sort of fits in to this? Many scientists think you're not going to learn anything by reading old science. It may be entertaining, it may be interesting, but you're going to get wrong facts. Uh, and, uh, and, the, and their approach is what we're trying to do is to get a more and more accurate explanation of things. Um, there are other people who think the, the job of science is not to find out the facts, but to try to come up with uh, a way of understanding the universe. And, uh, and facts are a part of that, but having the understanding is, um, is a, a huge dimension of that. Uh, and in 
So in studying old sciences, which is what we do at St. John's, we study old sciences, we, in chemistry, we redo experiments that were done hundreds of years ago. Uh, we look at the old observations in astronomy and try to understand uh, what these astronomers were, were thinking. We are, in a way, looking over the shoulder of, of a really, really smart person confronting questions that nobody had ever confronted before. And we can see how they went about understanding those things. When you're dealing with a modern scientific question, you're confronting something that nobody's ever seen before. So, so you've got the job of figuring this out. Now, if you've never done that before, uh, you're, you're, going to, you're not going to be in as good a position as somebody who has gone back and looked at how Newton figured things out, how Kepler figures things out, how Lavoisier figured things out in chemistry, um, uh, you, will, you, will, uh, you will approach modern problems by saying, you know, I've, I've been through this a lot of times with a lot of really smart teachers. At some point during your translation, you discovered um, that Kepler was sort of working backwards. He anticipated that people might not agree with this, and he wanted his case to be as solid as it could. Um, this is sort of the discovery that a lot of people, the New York Times picked up on it, that sort of thing. Uh, tell me about that, and, and how did you sort of realize, wait a second, this, this isn't doing what he says it's doing? Well, there was, it was just one chapter in Astronomy Nova. Uh, towards the end, he had already done the major spade work in establishing what the, uh, what the general shape of, the, of Mars's orbit was and, um, and how the forces had to work uh, in, order to, in order to create that shape. I could see from working through his, repeating his computations that he couldn't have done it the way he said he had done it. It, it was, uh, it, it must have been just a horrible mess as he was going through and fiddling with this number and fiddling with that number. And, uh, and, and he came up with this final table, which was very neat and nice, and had all these positions of Mars laid out very, uh, in a very orderly fashion. And I was wondering, how did he come up with, and I couldn't, I couldn't get them to come out until I took his final, his, his finished theory that he, that he worked out. Um, so I realized he, he took his finished theory and, and put it in there. Um, and I think what he was thinking was, if I had, if I had been able to do the computations that I, wanted, that I was working on here, and if I could have done them all perfectly, I would have come out with all of these positions because I know that these are the positions of the right ones because of the relation. So it's a complicated thing. Uh, it would not be regarded as legitimate science nowadays. But you have to remember that this is, this is uh, you know, 1604 or something like, something around there. And, um, and you have to cut him some slack. What about that time? attracted your attention and what about these a, works? There, there was just a huge change that, that happened then. Uh, Giordano Bruno executed in 1600. 
He was a proponent of an infinite universe with uh, the stars being possibly centers of other uh, planetary systems and so a very modern looking thing. He also had some very crazy ideas like he was trying to convince the Pope that the Pope should abolish the Christ Christian religion and go back to ancient Egyptian religion and all kinds of stuff like that. So it was, understanding, it was understandable that he would have been uh, tried with, for heresy and burned. But still, because Bruno was associated with those ideas, it was, um, it was not regarded as all right to think that way, at least for the next decade or two. But, but um, you couldn't really suppress that kind of, the kind of thinking once it was out of the box. By 1650, people were saying, you know, this idea of, uh, of Earth in the middle and the universe is a ball, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, we, need to, we need to be thinking in terms of you know, spreading things out and just trying to investigate the universe as we see it and not the universe as we imagine it. So, uh, so in a period of 50 years, the whole universe changes. It's, it's now reasonable to, to, to think of, of, a, of an indefinitely large universe. And what I figured out in studying this, I did my dissertation on it, was that the, uh, the real impetus behind that was, had nothing to do with new phenomena or anything like that. It had to do with, uh, with theology, largely. Interesting. And, and you had said that a lot of this work is taking place on, um, in religious settings, whether it's seminary or a religious university. At the same time, there were, there were the Thirty Years' War was going on. Um, you had the Jesuit college movement. By, I think by 1650, there were something like 500 Jesuit colleges set up around Europe. Uh, so there were Jesuit colleges all over, over the place. And, uh, and there were, so there were alternate educational movements going on that were often theologically based. And the Protestants had their own side on things, but they were by no means radicals. In fact, sometimes the Catholics were, like Descartes was, in, was educated in a Jesuit college. And, um, and a lot of the early Cartesians had that, that kind of background. Okay. Is, is that the reason um, that people like Kepler worried that they would get in trouble for the way that they were thinking or that there would be um, some sort of pushback. Obviously, they, they had seen what happened to Bruno. Seen what happened to Bruno, and they had seen uh, a little later what happened to Galileo, which was not as drastic, but he was under house arrest. It was just radically different. Did all these scientists know of each other and know of the work that, that they were doing? Uh, Galileo and Kepler uh, kept an eye on each other. Uh, Galileo was more standoffish, I think because Galileo didn't really understand astronomy very well. He was, which sounds like a strange thing to say, the inventor of the telescope does not understand astronomy. But he was, uh, uh, he was not able to accept Kepler's idea that, uh, that the uh, paths of the celestial bodies were not circular and that you had to be constructing a mathematical theory of forces in order to do to make them work he just he just never he just couldn't wrap his mind around that 
Kepler kept on writing to Galileo saying, you ought to, you ought to do this and you ought to do that, and then he wanted to talk to you about so-and-so, and Galileo would, would keep on not writing back. Unless he liked what he heard or read. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> when Galileo needed help, needed uh, uh, people with, uh, with good credentials to look at his new telescope, then he would write to Kepler and say, I've sent, my, I've sent a telescope over to Prague. Uh, <laughs> And I hope you'll get a chance to look at it. <laughs> and then Kepler was able to say, yeah, this thing really works. <laughs> when you found out that you were winning the award, or, or, or now, you know, as you think about it, um, what does it mean to you to have that recognition? I was really, I was astonished that, that, they, would, that they would consider me, because uh, it's usually to established academics other people with, with distinguished academic careers, and I have had a very atypical career. I have never, uh, I've never received tenure from anybody. But like you said, it's that chance really, as you're going through Kepler's journals, to be in his head or, or over his shoulder. Yes. Seeing what he saw and, and thought. It, it is, and, and unfortunately it's not, it's not really so much what is, um, what is current in history of science. But still, I think there's, and I think a lot of people agree with this, that there's room for people who are really just wanting to study the ideas and understand how, how those ideas develop and how they make sense. And maybe even to try to help students uh, uh, get an appreciation for that process, because that seems to me to be one of the very best ways to learn science is to be an apprentice to somebody like Kepler or Galileo or Lavoisier or whatever. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking all the time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for doing this. And we had much more with historical astronomer William Donahue uh, that we just didn't have time for in the show, but luckily we can bring it to you here. Uh, a couple years ago, they installed uh, really a piece of artwork, a functional piece of artwork that ties to historical astronomy there on the St. John's College campus. And so Matt Grubbs and William Donahue ventured outside so that he could show Matt exactly how it works. And we want to bring some of that to you here and let you know you can also head to YouTube for some more of our conversation with William Donahue and our full interview with him was part of our last episode, so if you missed that, we encourage you to go back and give that a listen. This is the only functioning Tychonic armillary in the world, as far as we know. It's, it's, uh, there are other armillary spheres. Uh, armillary, armilla is simply Latin for ring, um, and it's, a, it's an assembly of rings, as you see. Um, this one is different in that it is designed according to the plans that were published by Tycho Brahe in 1588. Uh, that uh, at that point he realized he was going to have to shut down his observatory, so he documented everything, and uh, fortunately, and published it all with really nice engravings. So we've got an engraving of the original of this, 
and this was made as a as a project uh, that was funded by the class of 2004. Each year, the graduating class decides what they're going to give to the college, and this class went way over the top in in donating this. Um, and now we're trying to figure out how to use it. Uh, it has uh, it has these wonderful features that were worked out by Tico Brahi to uh, that succeeded in improving the um, the accuracy of observations by a factor of ten. So this is the this is the the kind of instrument without which Kepler's uh, work on Mars would not have been possible because they were because Kepler needed. Uh, 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 measurements accurate within a minute or two, and uh, and the instruments at that time were only able to go down to plus or minus a tenth of a uh, uh, let's see about a tenth of a degree. Uh, so and he wanted Brahe wanted uh, a a thirtieth of a degree or a sixtieth of a degree accuracy. That's what Kepler needed to to do the Mars work. So this, this circle moves independently. This, um, I should say, this, this axle points towards the celestial North Pole, which is very close to, but not identical with, the North Star. And we've lined it up this way to go north-south. We've lined it up, um, we've, we've set the angle down here, we've got these adjusters here that, that let you tilt this thing so that it's set for our latitude. Then this is the declination circle that tells you, uh, allows you, along with this, um, this front sight, it lets you measure uh, by lining this front sight up with this back sight that I've mounted on the declination circle. You can line that up with, with a star or the moon or the sun. And then this circle is the equatorial circle. It's independent of the declination circle. It's calibrated all the way around to, uh, uh, I think, 180 degrees each way. So the whole circle is on this one. And this is for getting the, getting the, the coordinates of a, um, of a star uh, from, uh, uh, in an east-west direction. This is a north-south circle. I have set up a site on the north-south circle so you can get an idea of how you read the declination off of this. And I don't know if you can see the, um, the, 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 zigzag, um, the zigzag scale here. Each of these little dots that goes up and down represents a, an increment of one arc minute, that is one sixtieth of a degree. And it's readable because it's set up at a diagonal. So if we, and I think we really need to, in order to use this site, we need to go around the other side. Fortunately, we have a scale on this side too. Um, so I'm going to get this, this thing out of the way. And let's see um, if we can, um, where is, where is my, Ah, uh, you see, well, we don't really have enough sunlight right now. It's shining through that cloud. But if we have the sun, the shadow of this cylinder 
which is needs to be screwed in, shadow of this cylinder lines up between these two slits here. And, and you can check that by putting a card in and you see the shadow lining up exactly. These two slits are exactly the same distance apart as, as the sides of this cylinder. Uh, so that as you, get, uh, as you get one of these sides lined up, if you're a little bit off, you'll be able to see it by, uh, by the shadow being uh, a little bit off on the other one. In fact, it's going to be off on both of them. But, um, but so you try to get the fuzzy sides of the shadow to be fuzzy the same way on both sides, which is how you do, do the, the declination. Unfortunately, you can't focus this thing. So the telescope, uh, which came along just like 30 years after this was designed, um, uh, kind of blew all these things out of the water. <laughs> so, um, so this quickly became obsolete, although it was being, still being used by astronomers up until the 1660s or 70s. So it had uh, a lifespan, an effective lifespan, of less than a century. Oh, yeah. And still relied on an optical observation. You know, you have to sort of get your best guess as to where mm -hmm. that, where the two sides of that sphere are lining up to sight your, to sight the sun in this case. Yes. So. That's the way, that's the way it works. And you can also get good declination measurements of stars by sighting, you know, if I had a star, say, up there, I wanted to get a declination, I would, I would, Sight. You'd look through one I'd of look slits. through a slit, line the star up with the left slit on the left side of the cylinder up there, and then I'd go move my eye over and sight the right slit on the right side. And right I up here. and if I've got it, if I've got it perfectly lined up, then you'll just be able to see the star grazing the cylinder. Okay. If not, you move the sight. A tiny bit and then you read you can read down to the individual minute arc minute on the scale and is the declination um, relative always to the equator or to your position declination is always to the uh, to the altitude of the pole okay or the elevation of the equator yeah it's, so it's all it's all relative to the position of see this is this is a, a kind of a little model of the coordinate system that you imagine exists in, in the sky, okay. where you've got an equator. The equator always stays basically parallel to everything in the sky. And then this one moves around and, uh, and matches various meridians. Okay. So, um, so you, you've got a, you can see it's kind of like a, like a, a moving piece of graph paper that's been bent into a circle where you can get a position around uh, east-west and you get a north-south coordinate here. You get those two coordinates, you can, you can pinpoint any object in the sky, which is something the Greeks worked out in uh, uh, you know, the third century BC. But uh, uh, it wasn't until this kind of instrument that it was finally brought to a kind of degree of perfection that would suit Kepler's work. And just about that time, it became obsolete. <laughs>
Thanks, Galileo. <laughs> I think we can maybe able to get a get a good shadow now. Um, so I'm going to try. First of all, I got to see where is our. There's our cylinder. Okay. So so now I'm going to I'm going to slide this thing in, and you can see that the. In fact, it works better if you do it this way. You can see that the shadow of the cylinder is a little bit over this way. So I'm going to slide the sight just a tiny bit to the left. Whoops. Okay, now this is the problem with this sight. It wobbles a little bit. Um, so I've got to be sure that I'm pushing it against the ring. Okay, now are we close? I think we're very close, but a little bit closer on this side. So I'm going to shove it, shove it this way. Just a tiny bit. Oh no, that, I want it the other way. <laughs> okay, now that's obviously too far off, but there. I think that is what we want. And then we can read the whole thing off of the scale. Uh, it's 20. Um, trouble is, I can't see where the divisions are under there, but. Uh, this is 30, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25 is hidden, 24, so it's 23 degrees. And then I count how many, it's below 30. In fact, it's, it's uh, 20 something. And then I have to count the dots. So it's 20, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25, and the dot for 24. So, um, 20 degrees, 23 minutes, uh, 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 23 degrees, 24 minutes is our de solar declination. And that's, of course, dependent on whether I've got the outer circle set correctly. Okay. Which I found changes from time to time. <laughs> it's, you know, it's because this is all kind of resting on these little pads. Oh, sure. And, and it's clamped in here, but it's going to expand and contract. And as it does that, it may walk one direction or another. Okay. So I've got to keep, got to keep checking that. And of course, now you have tools to, to give you a check on this to know if it's right, correct? Well, actually, the way I, the way I get this number is on a map with GPS. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. But without this, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't have the observations to back up the theory that planets move in an elliptical pattern. We wouldn't have had them at the time that we needed them. It would have to be for somebody else other than Kepler. Okay. Can you imagine that? <laughs> so this, yeah, this thing that was obsolete after about 30 years of its existence, or at least had a competitor, came along with the guy who understood it and understood what it could do just at that right time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Kepler. Kepler, being a religious person, you know, he would, he was trained to be a Lutheran minister, and he said, he said, I, you know, I I can't uh, I can't think of anything other than the hand of God is at work here. <laughs> I was I was brought together with Tycho Brahe. He was the one who could build something like this, and I was the one who could take those numbers, and I knew what to do with them. And so he, he regarded himself as a kind of priest of nature. 
And this was this was his cathedral. Was he writing this in his in his works? Any of the works that you translated, or were these just sort of contemporaneous notes? He he, he wrote some of it, like okay. chapter chapter seven of um, of Astromanova is is talks about that, about how how the a strange sequence of events brought him together with Brahe. And he said, I just, uh, I just have to, uh, you know, you look at this and you think, it must be Providence or something. Sure. <laughs> it's such a, such a strange chain of events. It's fascinating. Well, Bill, thank you. We had a great line, pin, line opinion panel on the show this past week. It included Dan McKay of the Albuquerque Journal, along with regular Sophie Martin. She's also an attorney. And Merritt Allen of Vox Optima. One of the topics we jumped into was the huge jump in homeschooling during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, estimates from the Department of Education show the number of homeschool students nearly doubled last year and that has big impacts on the budget for public education which get paid out per student and so it leaves a lot of questions will those students return to the public education system in the fall uh, will families still have the resources the ability to work remotely all of those things that made that possible is there something bigger at foot here and what will uh, schools do to try to get kids back in and that's not just the homeschool students, but we know thousands of students have basically just gone missing during COVID-19. It's important we get those kids back in school. And so we wanted to talk about it with our line opinion panelists, what it'll take to make that happen. So let's kick it over to the line and host Gene Grant. There's no doubt the last 16 months have taken a toll on New Mexico's public schools Virtual and hybrid learning has pushed educators, students, and families to the edge. And there are still a lot of unanswered questions about what next school year will look like in terms of mask wearing or extended learning opportunities. Another impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is a dramatic increase in homeschooling in the state. According to the Public Education Department, the number of students that made the switch to homeschooling nearly doubled. And that shift could cost the Albuquerque School District more than $50 million. Now, Sophie, do you expect this trend to continue in New Mexico? Is this a blip or once the pandemic is completely over, will those students just head back to public school? How do you, how do you read this? Well, I mean, I think it's a complex issue and, and mm -hmm. it's worth noting it's a national issue. It's yes. not just happening in New Mexico. Good point. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a lot that goes into these decisions. Uh, will, for instance, will parents still be able to work from home? What will be the status of unemployment payments? Mm. Can you afford to stay home and homeschool? Mm -hmm. um, what programs, you know, will continue to be available? I think that's probably the most stable of these issues is, is that there is quite a bit of programming available for kids who are homeschooling. But um, all of these things are going to come into play. One of the things we know about this pandemic period is that it's been especially hard on women, that women have had to bear, uh, you know, a disproportionate cost mm -hmm. in terms of uh, caring for children, homeschooling, et cetera. And so each household's got to be making its own decision about can it afford to do it? What are the benefits to doing it? And certainly we do here. I, I remember actually a, about a year ago, I sat on this panel uh, and 
and said, you know, I think there are going to be people who, students who find that learning from home is better for them. And that is part of what we're hearing now, too. I think mm -hmm. I sounded like I was out of touch back then, but we were already hearing that's over right. a year ago um, that some kids are doing better at home. And that's part of what we're seeing in this discussion. Mm -hmm. The impact, though, on the school systems with so many fixed costs, costs that they, they will have difficulty uh, shedding as their funding formula means that they get less money. That's, That's right. going to be, I think, a crisis for education across the country and in New Mexico in the coming years. I want to circle back to that. That's a very good point there. Dan, um, is part of the fact of this the fact that parents and family members, they were just simply more involved in their own students' education out of necessity, as Sophie just mentioned. But now it seems to me the PED has a sales job to convince these families to come back to the public classroom going forward and actually make the case to these parents that it's better for their kids to come back to the classroom. This is going to be kind of an interesting discussion over the summer. Um, yeah, no doubt. There are also some broader demographic changes that are that are affecting, um, you know, the number of school aged children in New Mexico has been dropping in general. And so I think this this homeschooling trend is contributing to that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you're right that um, public schools do have to persuade uh, these families that it's safe to come back, that it's effective to come back. Um, and it could be that some of these families decide that, you know, homeschooling was the right choice and they want to continue doing it. But, um, uh, but there are certainly some interesting trends that are going to force New Mexico to rethink some of its, uh, some of its education efforts. Yeah. Um, Merritt, you know, it's this double-edged sword here for public schools. They get funding from the state on a per-student basis, as Sophie mentioned. That's another tough pill to swallow for districts. But the state does have some federal COVID relief money to cover them in the short run. But is this the time to make some adjustments moving forward? Is this little window we have when we have some federal money coming in? Absolutely. And that, that's exactly what, pardon me, what I wanted to talk about is mm -hmm. The pandemic was the right time for a reset for PED, for APS, right. um, because we've seen over decades, the way we are doing things is not working. We look at our numbers, any numbers, we change and every administration, we change the numbers we're looking at, whatever. Um, we're at the bottom of every list. Um, and more parents, when faced with a choice, are walking. And it's not the same types of parents. What's, what all the numbers are showing, homeschool, uh, homeschool families have traditionally been largely white. Mm -hmm. That's changed. Mm -hmm. And especially um, uh, homeschooling communities have grown up along cultural or ethnic lines. And particularly with our challenges with broadband and trying to connect um, remotely, homeschooling can seem a lot easier if you can get a curriculum um, it's a lot simpler to teach your children yourself. It gives you the flexibility. You don't have to be regimented against a specific um, school day. Mm -hmm. it, you can work it in with your work. Um, so there are there are a lot of issues on the school uh, homeschooling front. But you know, if you look at um, just how New Mexico organizes its school districts, the num having eighty nine school districts for the number of students we have and then a third of them in one mega school district. Right. That, that just, that makes no blasted sense. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a great opportunity to take, to your point, to take, to take that money and really do a reset and figure out what is best for our children because we've not been serving them. Uh, and it's not just a problem um, that uh, 
this PED has created. It's one that's been inherited and, and building and snowballing over decades. Good points there. Good. Some interesting stuff to think about there. Hey, Sophie, though, how does the revelation about the major increase in the number of homeschool students? Here's my question. How does it affect the big education issue that hangs over everything? And I'm talking about the Yazi Martinez trial, which found the state, of course, was not providing an equal education for all New Mexico students. All right, those with resources that you and Merritt and Dan are talking about might have the luxury to do some homeschooling, but more vulnerable New, Mexicans, New Mexico students don't have that choice. Do you think this will actually widen the education gap over the long haul? It very well could. And I think that one thing that we haven't really touched on here that that um, is of concern as well is the number of students who have sort of disappeared. Um, ah. And those that, where we don't know necessarily yes. that they're being homeschooled, they may have moved out of state, but it may be a situation in which they can't access schooling. Um, and so, you know, we were also going to be looking at have children fallen behind right. uh, those who have been educated and those who haven't. But but that is a really interesting issue. The the, the question of Yazi um, certainly as funding formulas uh, force what looks like it's going to be a decrease in in funds available to the school systems. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to make some hard decisions, and and Yazi's going to be hanging over all of that. Yeah. Hey Dan, you know education has become so politicized. It just. <laughs> You know, the battle, we're teaching critical race theory in K through 12. Is it, you know, it's one of those hard opinion questions, but is this just a way for families that don't believe in certain approaches to just skirt these things all together and just say the hell that I'm doing homeschooling? Is that part of this, that there's something political motivating some of these folks? Yeah, it's hard to tease out sort of the politics from other kinds of, um, you know, philosophical uh, debates over education. Um, you know, so it's a little difficult to, to describe to decide what, you know, what is driving the homeschool increase. But, you know, I think that the, the pandemic is probably the um, is probably the driving factor at this point, the disruption to in-person schooling. Um, uh, I have to imagine that's the overriding factor at this point. And, um, you know, the other things uh, may be lesser factors, but present as well. Mm -hmm. Hey, Dan, I want to stay with you on Yazi Martinez as well. I want to get your sense of this. Obviously, this puts a lot of the funding formulas in a bit of a disarray here. Again, you're, I'm asking your sense of this. How does Yazi Martinez get affected by this bump in homeschooling here in your view? Well, I, I think one of the key issues uh, that and you touched on it is the availability of broadband and um, you know, electronic devices, the, the material you need to do adequate homeschooling or remote schooling. You know, New Mexico lags. Uh, you know, the nation in broadband availability, there are uh, many, many families that just simply don't have internet or high-speed internet available yep. um, or paying for it. So I think that, uh, you know, that we're at kind of this time of tremendous disruption in the education system. And, uh, you know, there's, there's gonna be a lot of debate over how best to fix it, whether it's new resources or new strategies uh, or what. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Merrick, I want you to touch on the Yazi thing as well. I mean, it it is what it is, as you said a little bit ago on another subject, but there are things that have to be put in place. There's just not an option here. Does this, does this throw a monkey wrench into the whole thing? Well, and I think to Sophie's point, when we can't find um, some of the most underserved students because they've disappeared from the school system, it certainly doesn't make it that much harder. Mm -hmm. um, 
so we uh, we have that issue uh, to Dan's point that um, the remote access and the broadband issues, the tools that children really need to learn. Uh, I think learning without uh, internet or without uh, a, a laptop or tablet is going to put children further and further behind. And as uh, as this progresses for farther, and we're not catching up, and we're not catching up those children, right. those children. Um, this gap is going to uh, become wider. So the longer we wait, um, the harder it's going to be to become fully compliant. And the pandemic certainly um, did not help us. One, one point I just want to point quick, out, if you could. Mm -hmm. it's a little tangential, but mm -hmm. one thing about the rise of homeschooling, quite typically, um, the homeschooler is the, is, uh, the female parent. Ah. And we've already seen women dropping out of the workforce and this trend is going to continue to keep women out of the workforce and i just wanted to uh throw that out that's going yeah. to be something that is a generational uh gap uh i think that we see for you know the, uh, the next generation is uh the the pandemic uh the, the covid 19 uh women in the workforce drop gotcha. and it did tie to homeschooling Gotcha. Good points there. Glad you got them in. Keep up with this conversation on our Facebook page and let us know what you think about the rise in homeschooling. Up next here with the line, are the scandals reaching a boiling point for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham as she heads into re-election? The line panel this week also uh, dove into another topic, that of the growing scandal within Children, Youth and Families Department. We know them as CYFD. This is a story we've talked about before on the podcast and basically boils down to how the business of the taxpayers and the public is being conducted by CYFD. Uh, Searchlight New Mexico has done a lot of great reporting on this. Ed Williams, he learned that the department was using the app, uh, private messaging app Signal to do a lot of those business, even under direction to delete communications after a set amount of time. And we know transparency is big when it comes to uh, the way government is run and handled. We also know that these issues with vulnerable children are very sensitive. And so it's an interesting debate. Now there is a whistleblower uh, lawsuit involved as two of the people who brought up the problems with using the Signal app for communications were later let go. And uh, we also couple that with... Um, some other criticisms that seem to be growing against the governor. This happens in any administration the longer the governor is in office. But we've had uh, realization of overpayments of unemployment benefits during the COVID-19 pandemic. Republican lawmakers especially are upset that the governor vetoed their plan to spend $1.7 billion in federal relief money for covid they had a meeting last Friday with the governor and even admitted that they are in basic agreement on how that money should be spent, will be spent, but again, take issue with her doing that unilaterally without the uh, involvement of the legislature who usually hold the purse strings. So we wanted to find out if there are bigger troubles afoot for the governor as we head into the elections next year. She's up for re-election, has already announced her candidacy along with a growing pool of Republican challengers. So here now again, Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. 
A whistleblower lawsuit over the use of a private messaging system in the Children, Youth and Families Department. A restructuring of the Department of Workforce Solutions after millions in unemployment overpayments. And accusations from Republican lawmakers of secret meetings on how to spend over a billion and a half dollars of federal COVID relief funds. The honeymoon is definitely over for the governor as she stares down a re-election bid next year. The questions and criticisms, criticisms may be rising, but Dan, how vulnerable is she really headed into the midterms when you think about the entire record? Uh, well, it's difficult to say. Mm -hmm. She has had um, reasonably high approval ratings uh, as recently as last year, the last time the journal did a, a scientific poll. Right. Um, but there are also going to be some broader uh, political trends that uh, that may present a challenge. You know, typically the uh, party that is not in the White House loses ground at other uh, in other parts of government at midterm elections. So mm -hmm. that's something that could favor Republicans uh, next year. But we'll have to see. New Mexico has been a pretty blue state in the last few election cycles. So um, mm -hmm. and we're not sure yet who uh, the Republican nominee will be. Sophie, you know, every administration has issues, troubles as part of the game. As things go along, you get sideways with certain constituencies. It just happens. But does this growing list of questionable things give you or others some pause here? Can this just be chalked up to dealing with COVID-19 for 16 months and we should just sort of look at it through that lens? I, you know, I don't know that I would be that sort of, you know, let's move along about mm -hmm. it. Uh, some of the issues, you know, are are kind of big picture issues for for government how we spend money how we communicate um in the context of of open records and things like that and mm. and those are those are not just this moment in time those are issues that need need to be addressed uh longer mm -hmm. term i mean certainly to your point um governments are complex creatures yep and we have a tendency to sort of point and say, well, that's all on the governor. And on some level, yeah, the buck stops there. But but also they're, you know, they're just complicated beings um, and difficult to control. Mm -hmm. Merritt, we've got an issue with CYFD. It seems there's an issue for every sitting governor, but this one in particular over transparency and the use of, you know, certain kinds of messaging out there. If you could briefly kind of Give us just in a minute or so what's going on there and your sense of where the governor stands on this issue. Well, um, two uh, very senior level employees recruited from out of state to come help make CYFD better mm -hmm. um, attempted to do so. Um, we're told to stop doing so when they push forward and said, no, this is really what you asked us to do. Um, after six months and in one case, less than six months, we're, we're fired. Mm -hmm. And what was noted, uh, this is Cliff and Deborah Gilmore, and they've been uh, they've gone public and uh, filed a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And um, it was noted by Cliff Gilmore, our firing was the most competent, coordinated efforts that CYFD made in our tenure with the agency. Um, and it was over um, deleting um, a, a requirement to delete all text messages within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a no-bid contract for a $4.5 million software uh, package and installation. Um, it was a, uh, a hiring process that was clearly uh, to favor a certain candidate over others and not on uh, the uh, merits of uh, credentials. Um, and 
if if it's happening at that high a level, God only knows what's happening at the caseworker level. Mm. And so this is really blowing up uh, CYFD. And when you look at New Mexico, our state budget in general, without the ridiculous amounts of federal money pouring in, our budget is between six and seven billion. And compared with other states, that's that's not a lot. Mm-hmm. And the way our state is structured, most of the power is in the executive branch. And the legislature gave more of that power to the executive branch under the Richardson administration. But truly, it's not a big ask for a governor to operate competently and expect the agencies under um, the governor's purview to operate competently. Let, and we let, do not have that. Let me, let me ask you, Sophie, a question on this, uh, this regarding the uh, deleting of text messages and voicemails. I'm looking at the guidance from the administration under text messages, and it says this, quote, every single text message that you send to receive likely qualifies as a transitory record. And what that means is messages, you know, they don't convey, I'm sorry, they don't convey information of temporary importance in lieu of oral communications. There's something very confusing about that. I mean, we want to have transparency, we want these records saved, but the guidance from the administration itself says, no, you don't have to save these text messages. I think the the challenge here, yeah, I think the challenge here in terms of the open records laws, IPRA in New Mexico, Mm -hmm. is that it's not the mode of communication or the mode of um, uh, recording, for lack of a better way to put it, Mm -hmm. that should be guiding whether a particular communication is subject to open records and therefore must be preserved. It's the content. And so these inquiries really need to be fact-based. Is it... I, you know, do you have to keep, I'm leaving for lunch now in a text message? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, according to that, that guidance, it sounds like no. And I, and I, my understanding as well is no, mm-hmm. that's not a public record from the, from, you know, given the, the intent of the law. Mm-hmm. If you chose, and we've seen this happen, not just in this administration, right? But if you chose to put substantive information that if it was in another media would need to be preserved, if you chose to use Signal or another messaging app, Slack, if you chose to use text message in order to circumvent the requirement that um, a communication or a you know, a, 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 a recording mm-hmm. needs to be uh, preserved, that's a different matter, and that is problematic. Mm-hmm. It's, also, that- it's also how caseworkers often uh, have to reach their managers in, you know, kind of crisis times on, I need, uh, I need uh, permission, I need you to know, I need to remove this child. Mm-hmm. Are you okay with this? Interesting. And that would qualify, in your view, as a text that should be saved or not saved? Is that just the standard course of business? I mean, again, I'm trying to get to what should be saved here and what shouldn't merit. Is that... Is that... Um, I, I feel if um, we're removing a child from a home that is dangerous and um, that child somehow comes to harm and there is an investigation or uh, 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 perhaps a lawsuit, I feel like this would be evidence. Right. So, yeah, I think that should be saved. Interesting points there. That'll have to do it for the line this week. Unfortunately, thanks again to all of our panelists. I want to thank Ed Williams from Searchlight as well for his reporting on this issue. Thanks again to the panelists. I'm back in a moment with a few final thoughts.
All right, that'll do it for this episode of the podcast for New Mexico in Focus. We're already hard at work for next week's episode, including the return of our land, our environmental series with the uber-talented Laura Pascas. She's our correspondent. This is a really great and interesting story, especially as we head into wildfire season. No, we've had rain recently, but the fire danger is real. And we know that fire management or forest management has a big been a big contributor to wildfires in the past. She heads up to the Carson National Forest in northern New Mexico to tell us about a unique approach approach to forest management up there. It's a forest council that is run by community members. It's a community effort largely based on historical examples like acequias, land grants, Uh, Just a great, uh, innovative way to take care of our forests. And as you'll learn, even put a little money in some folks' pockets as well. Always a good thing. So our land coming up this week, we'll bring that to you along with a whole bunch more. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks as always for listening.